Welcome to the Impact Room, brought to you by Philanthropy Age and me, Maisa Jalbout. Step inside to hear stories of success, failure, and impact from people dedicated to solving global development challenges. This is a space to connect people and ideas that make a real difference to our world. My name is Jean-Marie Shimu. I'm 25 years old. I'm a refugee from Rwanda, living in Nairobi. I was born in Kenya, where my parents came in 1997 after escaping the genocide in Rwanda. My name is Amna Abzuhair, and I am 29 years old. I am a Palestinian refugee. My family fled from Gaza to Jordan after the 1967 war. There's a narrative that refugees should be self-reliant, and everyone agrees with this. But are we implementing plans to make sure they are actually able to be self-reliant? We need actionable points around legitimizing the refugee status or ID so as to give them access to the job market and pay them fairly. We need to continuously have discussions with host countries on how refugees can contribute to national economies and what initiatives can support this. We need to go from just speaking, taking action. And we need to include refugees in these discussions that are about them and put them at the core of coming up with solutions. Policymakers and the global community should allow refugees to decide their own fate by giving them the right to work, involving them in policy decisions related to their situation, and letting them to speak up about their plight. Refugee problems can be solved only by taking into account the perspective of refugees because they are the only ones who are experiencing the issues firsthand. What is happening in Ukraine is, in my opinion, making people in the global community realize that being a refugee is not an African thing or even a choice. Everyone, everywhere and anywhere can become a refugee. But at the same time, it has shown us a way to respond, that there are more cooperative solutions available. There are easier and better ways to deal with the refugee crisis collectively. For the World Refugee Day, my message is please give refugees a voice to speak about their plight and give them a hand to determine their own fate. The number of forcibly displaced people around the world has passed 100 million for the first time. This grim milestone is the result of a combination of factors. From violence and conflict to natural disasters and hunger, oftentimes linked to the impending climate crisis. Ukraine alone has generated more than 6 million refugee movements since the Russian invasion in February, and the knock-on effect that this has had on grain exports is triggering global food shortages. All this is piling even more pressure on what was an already creaking humanitarian system, one that is screaming out for new and innovative responses. The size and speed of the exodus from Ukraine prompted fresh questions around who is responsible for refugees and whether we as a world need to rethink our collective conscience regarding freedom of movement. Joining me today in the Impact Room to discuss these challenges, and we hope some possible solutions, we have Filippo Grandi, the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, Sasha Chenoff, CEO of Refuge Point, and Stephanie Cousins, CEO of Talent Beyond Boundaries. We begin with the High Commissioner of the UNHCR, Mr. Filippo Grandi. 
Born in Italy, Filippo began his humanitarian career in the 1980s, working for the Catholic Relief Services, supporting Cambodian and Indochinese refugees in Thailand. Since then, he has held various positions with UNHCR in Africa and the Middle East, and has served as the agency's head of mission in Afghanistan and the Commissioner General of the UN Relief and Works Agency for Palestine Refugees, UNRWA. In 2016, he became the UN's High Commissioner for Refugees. Welcome to the Impact Room, Filippo. It's an honor to have you here today. Thank you so much for having me here, Maisa. You've been at the helm of UNHCR for six years now, and every year the volume and severity of the global crisis seems to increase, filling our news channels with stories of conflict, violence, and people on the move. How would you characterize this current moment we're in? Indeed, the number of people forced to flee, be they refugees or internally displaced people, has grown exponentially, more than doubled in 10 years. We have now reached the staggering figure of 100 million around the world for the first time since we started seriously counting people on the move, forced to be on the move. What does that mean? I think it means many things, but essentially two. Number one, the world has become very bad, very inefficient in making peace, in uh, managing crisis, in finding that unity of intent politically, economically, to counter conflicts and other crises that come our way. And uh, the inability to solve means that uh, crises erupt, fester, add one to the other, and the number of people that inevitably have to flee their homes increases every year. The other factor, the other element of this is that the factors pushing people to flee are becoming increasingly complex. We at UNHCR, my organization, deal essentially with people that are fleeing war, violence, persecution, discrimination in its various forms. But then a lot of people also move or are forced to move by a combination of these factors with climate change, with uh, inequality, sometimes even health factors. The pandemic has contributed to all that. So the complexity makes it more difficult to respond, especially, back to my first point, in a world that is so inefficient in working together. So unless we change quickly, and this is true for refugees and migration as it is for climate, as it is for security, inequality, unless we find that unity, that cooperation, uh, that we, we lack, uh, I think that we will see crises increase and those numbers go further up in the years to come. Absolutely. I mean, the urgency has never been so visible. Um, and everything that you just mentioned creates even more pressure on you to respond to many issues that are not normally the areas that you focus on. Um, and perhaps the crisis in Ukraine has even heightened that in that for, for the first time in a very long time, we're now seeing a crisis erupt and cause uh, refugees in Europe. So 
there are now more than 6 million people who have fled Ukraine since February. And we've seen a remarkable response from, from governments in Europe, individuals and in the private sector to welcome and support Ukrainians, something that we have not witnessed in response to other crises such as Syria or Afghanistan. Do you believe this could set a new precedent for how refugees are supported going forward? Has this response encouraged you or is it possibly more of an indictment of perhaps the racism towards other non-white refugees that you most commonly support? Uh, This is a very important question. And the answer is that there is both encouragement and concern in this situation. Encouragement because, after all, Europe was able to take in, absorb six, in fact, we're almost seven million people that have moved across the borders from Ukraine. Okay, some people are now going back. This figure is very fluid. doesn't matter. This is a colossal figure. I mean, you know, politicians in Europe have been telling us, have been telling me for years that Europe is full, cannot take anybody, boats have to be pushed back, we have to erect walls. And then, you know, how come that in four months, six, seven million people can be taken in? But I I take this positively. I say, okay, it shows that it is possible, that it is manageable. Europe took very important measures. You know, very early on, during after the, the Russian invasion, Europe declared that all people coming from Ukraine would fall under what they call temporary protection. This is a technical name for a very important measure, which allows people to move around the Schengen space, around Europe, basically, that allows people to have access to public services, children to school, sick people to health uh, centers, etc., etc. So a very important inclusion measure that was decided very early on and that allowed for this response to be efficient. So I take it like this. I say, yeah, sure, other crises have not been dealt with in the same manner, but this proves the point that it is possible to deal with refugee displacement crisis around the world rationally, coherently, and efficiently. And it is possible to do it without too much political drama if instead of fueling hostility towards the people arriving, you say, you know, they're coming from war, they're being, you know, their cities are being bombed, their houses destroyed, we have to help them, which is what politicians did in Europe. So I wish they would do it for all other refugees. And I wish that this substantive, unanimous response could be possible also in other places. And unfortunately, this is where the concerns kick in. Because at the moment, my organization that has seen, like many others, an enormous, generous support by donors, private and public, for the Ukraine response does not see the same in other crises. On the contrary, I'm worried that the resources that are going towards the Ukraine response will be at the expense of refugees in Bangladesh or um, our huge humanitarian response in Uganda, the operations we're conducting to help Venezuelans in Latin America, and the list is is very, very long. And my last point is that this concern is heightened also by the fact that in all those countries, especially in Africa and in the Middle East, I would say, the impact of Ukraine is already felt in other ways. 
food scarcity, high energy prices, inflation, and so forth. So all these problems affect also refugees and displaced that are very vulnerable. So you have a, a double impact there on the most disadvantaged people. And that needs to be addressed very urgently. Absolutely. I want to have you reflect to us, you know, your vision for where you see things moving beyond the immediate crisis that you're dealing with today. We know that there will be new conflicts, more climate change related displacement, people on the move due to food shortages, and of course, continued economic instability. All this is only going to increase the number of refugees in the future to the point that caseloads of displacement risks far outstripping the capacity of UNHCR in the wider UN system. Short of all conflicts ending or no more climate crisis and the end of economic inequality, what needs to change? Do global refugee policies need to change? And if so, how? Do you foresee new strategies? Uh, are you envisioning new strategies that UNHCR could propose to meet these unprecedented needs? I would say that um, in the last few years, because remember 2015, 16, that looked like a major refugee crisis in Europe. It looks very small now compared to the Ukrainian crisis. But we had like a million people, uh, many of them Syrian, Syrian refugees, moving um, through Greece to the Western Balkans to, to Central and Northern Europe. And if you recall, that crisis generated enormous debate. Some of the results of those crises, of that debate, were positive. You know, we have now two important global compacts, one on refugees, one on safe and orderly migration, very closely interrelated, which the UN is, is helping manage, and that have generated a lot of new resources, approaches, um, uh, uh, partnerships, in refugee and migration responses that didn't exist before. I'll give you one example. The World Bank, one of the largest development organizations in the world, has established for the first time in the last few years a series of financial instruments to help countries affected by the presence of many refugees, which, by the way, are not European countries or rich countries. They are usually... In, in Africa, in the Middle East, they are middle-income or even lower-income countries, so they need help. But these new instruments that were a result of the reflection of 2015-16 are already being very helpful, for example, in many African countries. They've been very helpful in Jordan as well. So these are very important. And what we have also seen as a result of the compact and the mobilization that went with it beyond states was great mobilization by the private sector, by ordinary citizens. You know that of the one, approximately one billion that my organization alone, UNHCR, was able to mobilize to respond to the Ukraine emergency, half was contributed by private sources citizens, companies, foundations. This is extraordinary. And this needs to be structured, sustained, and amplified also to other parts of the world. So there are positives, but you're quite right. Unless we get the fundamentals right, all of this will be difficult to become uh, you know, sustainable. And the, the fundamental in my world of refugees and displaced is really conflict resolution, is addressing those festering crises 
to which every year new crises are added. That's really the most important part of the response. If we get peace right, we are on the right track and we have the tools to really respond effectively, which we did not have a few years ago. I couldn't agree more. High Commissioner, finally, with the World Refugee Day coming up, what message do you want to leave with our listeners? You know what I will do this World Refugee Day. I will be a little bit provocative. I have decided that instead of going in one of the emergencies, and God knows how many we have, so it was just a matter of choosing which one, I will go to a place where a refugee situation is ending. And that, maybe not very well known to any of your listeners or anybody in the world, is a country in Africa, is Côte d'Ivoire, a country in West Africa. Ten years ago, 15 years ago, there were three to 400,000 refugees from that country that had precipitated in a situation of civil conflict, of civil war. Now, thanks to peace efforts in the country, supported internationally, the country is stable again, is actually quite prosperous economically, and most of the refugees have returned. And the neighboring countries who still host a few tens of thousands have agreed that these people can stay where they are. So thanks to this efforts and agreements, UNHCR will do something that we rarely do this day. We will declare the cessation of the status of refugees for Ivorians. This is a very symbolic act that means that the problem is solved. So I want to go and celebrate that exception, hoping that others can be inspired by it. Let's hope so. High Commissioner, thank you very much for joining us in the Impact Room today. Thank you so much, Maisa, for inviting me. Much appreciated. My next guest is Sasha Chenoff, the founder and CEO of Refuge Point, a U.S.-based nonprofit running resettlement programs and advocating for refugee rights globally. Welcome to the Impact Room, Sasha. Thank you, Mesa. It's great to be here. So, Sasha, to start off with, very briefly, could you please share with our listeners why you set up Refuge Point and explain what the organization does? Refuge Point is an organization that focuses on solutions for refugees, enabling people to get to places and into situations where they can lead dignified lives and thrive. We do that in two ways. One is for people who cannot stay safely where they are, we help them resettle to a country like the US, Canada, Australia, or EU, or other countries where they can rebuild their lives and move forward with a sense of permanency. For those who are stuck indefinitely in the countries to which they've fled, we help them become self-reliant so that they don't have to depend on erratic humanitarian aid. We have a flagship program in Nairobi called our Self-Reliance Runway Program. And from that program, we have helped to influence and guide and work with partner organizations in different places around the world. We have a specific and, and distinct way of approaching this work. We use private funds to create new programs. We test and measure those programs to make sure that they work. And then we try to expand them beyond the scope of our direct operations by training partners, by forging coalitions, and by influencing policy and practice. Thank you for that explanation. And I'm going to ask you to elaborate in just a moment. But first, I want to make sure that we 
reflect on the fact that in addition to the very pivotal moment that we're at now where we've reached 100 million forcibly displaced people, some experts estimate that we may see up to 1 billion people on the move by 2050. Sasha, do you think our current systems, policies, and resources are adequate to manage a crisis of this scale? And what do you think we need to be doing differently? Yeah, no, certainly our current system and resources are not. I would say that broadly, we are still stuck doing things in a way that are not fit for purpose anymore. The average amount of time people live in situations of forced displacement and as refugees has often reached 20 to 25 years. And the number of people who access a solution, that is return home, get resettled, or have access to citizenship in the country to which they fled, is less than 3% every year. So there's a few things I would say that we need to do differently immediately. One is to center the voices and needs and concerns of refugees themselves so that they are in charge of their own lives and can help to build the programs that impact their own lives. We also have to work closely with refugee leaders in their communities to elevate their voices, to see what their needs are, and to get funding to them, because a lot of the funding is not available to the grassroots leaders, so that has to change. The second thing I would say is that we have to really shift the humanitarian response paradigm away from emergency aid year after year, which is essential at the outset of a crisis and helps to keep people alive, but doesn't really make sense when you are stuck for five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. So we need to find ways to enable refugees to stand on their own two feet, support themselves, and contribute to their communities. And I think if we can shift the humanitarian focus or align it with emergency response and then towards self-reliance, we can start to see dramatic changes. The third thing I would say is that we're at this unique moment of opportunity that I think has emerged from the unspeakable crises that we're confronting as a global community today. And But I say opportunity because the welcoming and reception that I have seen for Ukrainians, for Afghans, and, and in some ways extending to other refugee communities is something that we have to understand, double down on, and expand across countries and across the world. So we want to do everything we can to take advantage of the welcoming attitude of governments right now. And I would say lastly, it is essential for us to think about how to collaborate and come together as humanitarians, as business leaders, as foundations and governments to work collectively toward common goals. And I have found there's so much competition for resources that that often limits collaboration, and yet collaboration is a real key to moving the needle on these global challenges that are intractable and extraordinarily challenging. Picking up on that point that you mentioned that this might be a point in time where we have an opportunity to do things differently. You know, in recent years, we've seen some European countries put in place regressive policies to stem the flow of refugees and penalize people seeking asylum, often in violation of international conventions. By contrast, we have recently seen very progressive policies, policies that you just referred to, to accelerate help for Ukrainian refugee resettlement. Has the response to the Ukrainian refugee crisis truly opened up new opportunities, or are we 
in effect encouraging and uh, potentially heading towards a two-tier system? It's a great question. And certainly we see like at the U.S.'s southern border, um, the, the policies that are preventing asylum seekers from entering the U.S. and keeping them in situations that are really brutal and dangerous. We're seeing similar things and have for some time with the Australian response to asylum seekers there where they um, don't allow people to come into Australia but put them on the islands of Nauru and Manus, which are probably some of the worst places in the world to be a refugee. And we're seeing extraordinary disparities in terms of, as you mentioned, how Europe responds to Ukrainians and others. But at the same time, I do think that there is an opportunity. We are seeing an extraordinary amount of welcoming and sponsorship happening in many countries around the world. Canada, of course, has been a leader in sponsorship, having a program that's gone now for about 42 years for refugees from around the world who arrive in Canada. We're seeing that in the U.S. as well right now. We're seeing in the U.K. and EU countries that certainly they're opening their doors and homes and hearts to Ukrainians, but some percentage of these people are going to feel so moved and so motivated by what they're doing now that that sentiment and those expressions of warmth and welcome can carry over to populations. Certainly, we've seen that in Canada's history and what Canada has done, welcoming Vietnamese at first, and more recently, Syrians in 2015, and now today, Ukrainians, among others. But we're seeing it in other places. The U.S., just for example, a refuge point helped along with partners, helped to build a new program called the Sponsor Circle Program for Afghans. And this is a program where Americans can come together and sponsor an Afghan family. And that program has now been so successful that the U.S. wants Americans to build communities to support Ukrainians along the lines of the Sponsor Circle for Afghans. And we're seeing that that will probably branch out to refugees more broadly around the world. Sasha, I'm interested to know more about Refuge Point's self-reliance initiative. How successful has this been? Are some countries uh, more receptive than others? Refuge Point built a flagship program in Nairobi called the Self-Reliance Runway Approach, where it takes us about two years working in partnership with people who have fled to Kenya from Sudan, Somalia, Congo, Rwanda, and other countries to get to a point where they don't need support anymore through a set of tiered services that lead to economic independence, but also lead to um, social integration as well, access to schools, to health, um, to other basic necessities that people need to survive. We found a number of partners and worked together to build something called the Refugee Self-Reliance Initiative, which is co-founded by Refuge Point and the Women's Refugee Commission and includes refugee-led organizations as well as the UN Refugee Agency, some of the largest um, other organizations in the world supporting refugees, international uh, humanitarian organizations, as well as many grassroots organizations and academics and business leaders and foundations and governments and others. And we created an effort to collectively reach 5 million people 
in five years with programming that puts them on a path to self-reliance and build an evidence base of best practices that can be shared across the field so that we can transform humanitarian response toward one that is centered in dignity, in opportunity, and enables refugees to support themselves and contribute to their communities. And we're finding that now we have, I believe it's 30 partners in 20 countries who are using a tool that we created called the Self-Reliance Index in their programming to measure the impact of of that programming and build that evidence base that didn't previously exist so that we can think about how funders can most effectively fund programs to scale up. And so what types of jobs do you find are most popular as part of this self-reliance initiative? And how do you get around the difficult labor laws in the countries that you operate? Yeah, it's a great question. And it, and it really is country specific. But I'll talk about Kenya for a moment, simply because that's where Refuge Point has this flagship program. In Kenya, refugees can actually pay the city council government to run a business there. So while it's really hard for refugees to get a work permit, they can actually start and build a business legally. And we're seeing that many, we've helped over a thousand people launch and build businesses, that they they can get to a point where they're supporting themselves and their families, they can move into safer homes, they have a roof over their heads, the kids have access to education, there's access to health, and there's an income coming in, and people feel more integrated. The program sounds like it has a lot of potential, particularly for countries where uh, refugees are unable to work due to restrictive labor laws, and I hope that you can spread this to many more countries. Yeah, I wanted to tell you something else because I was just in Canada. I, I was visiting with many refugees that Refuge Point has helped to get there. You know, we have been a leader in the resettlement space, identifying people who need resettlement as a life-saving solution. But at the same time, the Canadian government has spearheaded a new program called the Economic Mobility Pathways Project, essentially labor mobility for refugees, because we're seeing in many rural communities and other places that there are huge needs among employers who can't find employees across Canada. And this is a problem in other countries as well. So they're turning to refugees globally to say, are there people who have the skills and experience that match our employment needs? Canada and Refuge Point and many other partners, including the UN Refugee Agency, Talent Beyond Boundaries, and other governments have come together to build a new pathway, essentially a labor mobility pathway. And so Refuge Point has spearheaded this from Kenya. And we've enabled many refugees to arrive in Nova Scotia and Pictou County in particular is the first place where there are some employers who need healthcare workers and nurses desperately. I was there last week meeting with some of the people who are there. And there's a really interesting thing that has happened with this labor mobility project and with the idea of enabling refugees to become self-reliant. And what that is, is that the conversations that we have with refugees to assess skills are rooted in questions around what is your education? What are your experiences? What is your work background? And how does that relate to the opportunities in front of you? And that enables people not to talk about the war that they fled, 
or the trauma that they've been through, but to talk about who they are as people. So we've seen people light up with these questions, and some have said after these kinds of interviews, this was the best day of my life as a refugee because I feel like I was seen as a whole person. So when we center conversations around self-reliance and around opportunity and around dignity, you see that that really helps us understand people as whole people and helps refugees be seen as whole people. Sasha, lastly, as we come up to the World Refugee Day, what is your message to our listeners? How could individual philanthropists, foundations, donor agencies best help at this point in time? Refugee issues are no longer sidebar issues. They will or are going to impact everybody in the world. As you said at the start of this podcast, there are estimates that a billion people may be forcibly displaced in the future. This is because of climate change and because we see that climate change is often a trigger to conflict. So we have to start thinking about these issues differently. There's something that we can't avoid, we can't overlook, we can't turn away from. And we also see that if we can find ways to enable refugees to have pathways to dignity and safety and new lives, it supports them, but it also enriches our own lives immeasurably. And as we think about what philanthropists, what businesses, what governments, and what others can do, I think the actions need to be centered around enabling people to lead lives of dignity, enabling people to draw on their skills, to contribute to their communities. And as we do this, we will build stronger, more effective communities. I couldn't agree more. Thank you so much, Sasha. It is my pleasure, Mesa. Thanks so much for inviting me to this podcast. My final guest today is Steph Cousins. Steph is CEO of Talent Beyond Boundaries, which was set up in 2016 to help match skilled refugees to job opportunities in new countries. Firstly, Steph, to start with, could you please share with our listeners what Talent Beyond Boundaries is and why it was set up? Talent Beyond Boundaries is a global nonprofit. We were set up really to identify ways to support refugees and other displaced people to utilize their skills as a way of building their new futures. So we know that displaced people around the world come from a whole range of professional backgrounds. Um, they have a whole range of different skills and talents. But the reality is most refugees end up in countries where they're not able to fully utilize those skills and talents because they either lack work rights or they're shut out of the local labor market. So we really thought, what additional ways could we step in to assist refugees to identify pathways out of displacement using their skills. And the reality is around the world, millions of people move on skilled visas every year. That is just a normal part of our international migration system. Companies are hiring internationally every day. They are desperate for talent and often that talent can't be found in the local market. So companies around the world are really looking for talent and we saw that refugees and displaced people are really an untapped source of that talent and we can create a win-win by connecting businesses with refugees and, and helping them to hire those refugees it's on skilled visas and that is a way for refugees to have an additional pathway out of displacement, bringing their family to a new country where they can rebuild their lives and careers. 
Steph, that's great. It sounds like Talent Beyond Boundaries is very much needed, and the programs that you have set up have a lot of potential. Could you explain to our listeners how uh, your programs work by just illustrating perhaps an example of a program that's working well to fill the gaps, skills gap, by recruiting refugees? So our program really starts with the talent catalogue. So that is a software and database that we have developed as Talent Beyond Boundaries to enable refugees around the world to sign up and display their skills in a way that businesses can then search and select for the talent that they need. So currently we have 42,000 people signed up to the talent catalogue from different refugee and displaced backgrounds, mostly out of the Middle East. And what we tend to do is we work with businesses in a range of countries, particularly at the moment, Australia, Canada and the UK, but that's growing. And we identify what are the skill needs of companies in those countries. And we ask them to give us what are the criteria that they're looking for, what roles are they looking for, what position descriptions. And then we use that to match candidates from the talent catalogue, present them to businesses. Businesses do a full remote recruitment process and they test the skills, they do interviews and really they get to the point where they're comfortable to hire. They know that the candidates have the skills that they need. And then we support the business through the visa process. So we connect them up with immigration legal advice. We assist in the document collection for candidates, which can be quite difficult for refugees often. And then once a visa has been approved, we then support candidates through the migration process. So actually, you know, booking flights, landing in the destination country. We connect them up with settlement organisations on the ground to assist with acclimatising to the local community and getting settled in because it's not just workers that move, it's also families as well. And obviously, given the background of, um, of these individuals, there's a range of different needs that they have on arrival. So we support that whole end-to-end process from recruitment to mobility and settlement at the destination end. Fantastic. And, and how is all of this funded? So we believe that the program really can be self-funded ultimately. Uh, and that's because the beneficiaries of the program uh, have skin in the game and they can actually contribute to the cost. So one of the obvious beneficiaries are the businesses that are gaining new skills and new talent through this program. So typically businesses will pay for the costs of the visa and migration process or at least a significant portion of that. Uh, then we also believe that governments are ultimate beneficiaries as well and we're starting to work with governments to encourage them to be investing in particularly the settlement support that candidates need once they arrive. And then, of course, the, the individual refugees themselves are beneficiaries. Now, refugees, when they're living displaced, because of the circumstances that they're in and the fact that they're not able to often work legally, they're really at an economic disadvantage and they're not in a position to contribute to the cost. But what we have been experimenting with is where we can cover costs up front for candidates and then it might be the cost of doing an English test, for example, which is a couple of hundred dollars. We can cover the cost of that. But then the candidate, once they're settled and they're working in a country like Australia, maybe they're on $80,000 a year in, in the Australian market, uh, they're in a position to then cover those costs and pay them back. So the whole model can be self-funding, but in order to get there, we're really relying on philanthropy, I would say. And philanthropy has driven this model from the very beginning. 
In the US, even though we haven't started a program yet, we are designing a program in the US at the moment, and we hope that it will be ready to go live later this year. And we are seeing some philanthropic donors in the US seeing the value of that, but also seeing the the global impact of the work that we're doing. And um, we have had particularly off the back of a, of a competition that you've profiled actually in this podcast, the Larson Lamb Iconic Impact Prize. We were a finalist for that competition last year. And off the back of that competition, we were able to, you know, generate a lot more momentum and awareness of the work that we were doing. And um, we've had some philanthropic support that, that flowed from that competition, which has been absolutely fantastic. And I would say a game changer for our organisation and, and we've seen some greater interest from philanthropy as, as a result of that. To scale this, we're, we're going to need really, you know, the wider donor community to support the scale-up effort. And that's things like actually supporting our team to grow so that we're, we can support more refugees to move through the, the program. And of course, there are the costs associated with the skilling of the refugees themselves. I happen to know one of the great organizations that's working with you out of Lebanon, Unite Youth for Lebanon program, and they've placed, uh, I think, something like 30 uh, refugee nurses out of Lebanon with you in the UK, which is um, a great success. But obviously, they also have to raise the money to make sure that the nurses are educated at the highest level and meet the qualifications for you to be able to transfer them. So it is still requiring the support of philanthropists. But as you say, there is this potential as the you know, so-called war on talent uh, accelerates um, for governments to subsidize and for companies to pay the full costs associated uh, with recruiting that talent. Can you tell us about your impact to date, where you've had the most success and where you envision greatest growth? Our vision really is systems change because right now refugees generally can't move through these skilled visa channels easily because of a range of barriers that stand in their way. So the reason I say we're about systems change is because ultimately our our aspiration and our number one impact area is to change those visa systems. Um, and that that will be lasting impact that, you know, lasts beyond anything that Talent Beyond Boundaries can do directly to facilitate recruitments. We believe that when the pathways are open, there will be a range and there are a range of different operators, including recruitment firms, businesses themselves, other refugee serving organisations that will support refugees to access those pathways. So I think our number one impact area at the moment has been success on that front. We have managed to secure special visa programs with the Australian government, the UK government, and also the government of Canada. The, the Canada program is, is probably the, the largest in terms of their ambition for scale. At the moment, the Canada program is looking to welcome at least 500 principal applicants on their skilled visa pathway. And their ambition is to increase that to at least 2,000 places. That's primary applicant places plus family members. Um, and we have a similar program in Australia, which we have with the Australian government for 200 refugee candidates plus their families. And in the UK, I mean, we've had really exciting progress in the UK, both with a similar displaced talent visa program for 100 
150 candidates, but also um, we've been partnering with the National Health Service and a range of different hospital trusts, and that has enabled us to uh, assist nurses like the, the nurses who have come through ULIP to move to the UK, and a couple of hundred nurses have already been hired through that program, which is very exciting, and several more, about 400 more to go this year. So we're actually really at a point where we can say that people are moving to their new lives out of this program. 670 refugees have secured durable solutions through the program so far. We have much bigger ambitions than that. We want to help thousands of refugees to secure these visa solutions over the next couple of years. We are now expanding into new countries to open visa pathways into new countries. So we have a program with the International Organization of Migration to expand into Portugal, Ireland and Belgium. So we'll be working with those governments on, on their visa pathways. We're also in discussions with the US government about what a labor pathway for refugees would look like for the United States. Um, we're also starting to pilot in New Zealand. In some ways, what you do is very obvious. We know there's a skill gap and we know there are skilled people. Why are there not more organizations like yours joining those dots? What are the barriers to making this approach work? It's a little bit like a hourglass. I know some some of our colleagues have referred to it like an hourglass where you have this huge amount of talent and this huge amount of demand, but the funnel between the two is very narrow. And that makes it difficult, I think, for organisations to actually support refugees to, to access these opportunities because actually the, the pathways themselves are very complex and, and restricted. I think it is a really obvious solution and it's a win-win solution and there, there are an increasing number of organisations seeing that and, and starting to work on it. As we are more successful in demonstrating the potential impact, we will see more organisations taking it on. But it's, it's new, right? I mean, it's, it's a very new area for particularly organisations and donors who are working in the refugee space. Uh, it's not the typical pathway to go through a skilled visa pathway. And there's a lot of complexities to, to opening up a, a new programming area like that. So I think our role as Talent Beyond Boundaries is to demonstrate it, to show that it works, to share our knowledge with others and to help them come on board and use their resources as much as possible to help refugees access these programs. And I think the ULIP example is a really good one because that's a program that is set up in Lebanon to help refugee nurses to advance their careers. And the reality is that they're going to have a lot more opportunity in the international market to, to develop those careers than they will have locally often because of restrictions on work rights. Refugees are not allowed to be nurses in Lebanon, despite Lebanon actually having a, a nursing shortage. So, yes, you're providing them really with their only pathway to employment. You've mentioned the Middle East. Um, I'm wondering, you know, with other uh, very current crises, Afghanistan, Ukraine, um, how quickly are you able to mobilize and have you been able to support those populations? So the beauty of the talent catalogue is it's open to anyone to, you know, sign up from any location. So as soon as the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan happened in August last year, we put an announcement on our website in Dari and Pashto and English just telling Afghans how to register. 
on the talent catalogue and giving them some resources on how to do that. And we immediately had hundreds of Afghans signing up and we have been able to match many of those. I think there's about 36 people who've gotten job offers so far out of that community. So that that's definitely an advantage of this technology-based model that we can expand it immediately to new country contexts. And we don't necessarily need to be on the ground to do that because the process is very much driven remotely. And it'll be very interesting to see if you have different responses to different nationalities as you expand your database and the skill sets available to employers. So we'll have to follow up with you on that. You know, Steph, one thing I wanted to ask you is part of what your program perhaps very intentionally is doing is shifting you know, the paradigm or changing the narrative around refugees. There are often labeled as uh, an economic burden on host communities. What's your view on that? Are you seeing a shift as a result of the skills that you're able to put forward through the refugees that you've placed in various countries? I hope so. I mean, I find this argument so frustrating because it's really just so far from the truth. Refugees come from all walks of life. Of course, they're economic contributors where they're given the chance. And unfortunately, most first countries of asylum, there's work rights restrictions or limitations on work. You know, there's a lot of reasons for that and a lot of complexity around that. But the reality is refugees are not in a position to contribute and to build their careers for the most part, which is why they end up in a position of vulnerability. You know, I think a lot of the initial biases were refugees would be great for low skill roles or those roles that locals don't want to do and refugees come from you know all walks of life you've got software engineers doctors nurses engineers people with profound skills and knowledge and insight and you also have people at the you know skilled trades vocational trades and the low skilled roles as well so it's a whole cross section the availability of talent across all levels of of demand in the economy are there So I think we are starting to see, at least in the business community, a real eye-opening shift to, oh, this is actually a talent pool that we can tap into at a time when we're desperate for talent. And it's also a talent pool that can support their broader goals around diversity and inclusion. So we hope that really at a company-by-company level, we're helping to change and shift, you know, perceived negative perceptions. And we're definitely seeing that in the companies that have hired because all of a sudden they have a colleague who confounds any of those biases. I can see such huge value in that. But I want to just ask you about um, the other side of this, right, about the refugees who don't get selected to be part of your program or other programs that are very targeted. You're Australian, and you've done a lot of work around refugee policy in Australia. Uh, We had a guest on the Impact Room a few months ago. His name is Abdullahi Alim. He uh, He was a Somali refugee who was given asylum in Australia, and he's now at the World Economic Forum. He spoke very frankly about his experience of being a refugee in Australia and the racism he experienced there and, and how he got to the point that he is today and obviously a very successful individual. I'd love for you to listen to that episode and give us your feedback. But he was very articulate on a point that we later labeled as you know, the good refugee and how potentially damaging that narrative is. How do you prevent programs such as the ones that you're running from becoming 
you know, a flag bearer for that good refugee narrative? Is it okay for countries to pick and choose just a handful of skilled refugees and reject all others? How do you tackle that very tough question? That is such a good question. And I think it's so important that labor mobility and the work that we're doing at Talent Beyond Boundaries is seen as an add-on to a system that really should be providing protection to people who need it most. So we say really countries should have strong, robust asylum systems, you know, particularly wealthy countries that have the resources should be resettling large numbers of, of refugees who are in really situations of vulnerability and, and need assistance to relocate. It's also really about sharing responsibility with asylum countries that are hosting well over 80% of the world's refugees and those countries tend to be middle-income, low-income countries. I think it's really important and we, we make this point regularly to governments that setting up schemes like a skilled refugee labour mobility type scheme is an add-on to what they should be doing in resettlement. If they say, oh, we'd like to do a TBB program and we're going to reduce our resettlement, we will walk away and we will not participate in that. And we make that very, very clear. I think it's so important and it's a risk. It's something that we really have to manage vigilantly because what, what we're doing at TBB is about levelling the playing field within skilled migration systems, but it does not replace resettlement or asylum. Thank you for making that point clear. Um, many private sector companies listen to our podcast and often ask, uh, how can we get involved in supporting refugees other than providing aid? What would you say to them? I would say look at the talent, be open-minded to the potential of that and as you said at the start, there is a war for talent between businesses and often businesses are going to the same talent pools and poaching each other's talent um, when you've got about 14 million refugees who are stuck in countries where they can't legally work that have skills and could be a really good match for those business needs. We will definitely link to your organization uh, for any private sector companies that are looking for talent. Steph, thank you so much for joining us on The Impact Room today. Thank you so much for having me, Mesa. Really appreciate it. You've been listening to The Impact Room, brought to you by Philanthropy Age and hosted by me, Mesa Jalbout. If you've enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to subscribe to make sure you don't miss forthcoming episodes. Please give us a rating where you get your podcast. And most importantly, tell your colleagues, friends and family to check us out. For more about today's topic, the podcast and Philanthropy Age, please check the show notes or follow us on social media at Philanthropy Age or on my Twitter handle at Maisa Jalhoud. Thank you for listening.